0: This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from
1: Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar.
2: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. Politics of the United States. This week, an open door into the Oval Office... We're joined by Karen Hughes and Mark Penn two presidential advisors to two very different presidents. For Hughes it was George W. Bush. From the campaign to 9-11 and beyond and for Penn it was Bill Clinton. From the re-elect to the government shutdown to impeachment. Now they're a team at the top of one of the most important public affairs firms on the planet Burson Marsteller and they'll take us inside the Oval Office. Then Steve Schmidt, senior advisor to John McCain in the 2008 campaign and star character in the new HBO film Game Change, what the film got right, and what he learned from the experience. I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here.
1: It's great to be with you, Adam. A uh, very interesting week on the polyoptics front. Fascinating set of guests we'll have later on. I was particularly taken with the way that President Obama and Prime Minister Cameron uh, seemed to get along famously, both in Washington in the official events related to the Prime Minister's official visit, the 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 arrival in the South Lawn, the dinner with people like uh, John Legend and and Mumford and Sons as entertainment on a huge tent in the South Lawn, and also this field trip that they took to Dayton.
2: Yeah, you know, the president of the United States and his team have gotten uh, increasingly savvy with how to handle this relationship with our special friend across the pond. And, and David Cameron is a wonderful character and a willing participant. Uh, the things that made it such an interesting polyoptic week uh, was this interview that we heard uh, at the NCAA, It was pre-tournament, but the president and the prime minister took in a basketball game, and they did a courtside interview, and this was just another example of this friendship manifesting itself in a very real way because you saw, Josh, both of these guys enjoying a hot dog at the ball game
1: what do you make of the experience so far i'm enjoying it it's it's fast it's uh, pretty fast and furious it's hard to follow sometimes exactly who's done what wrong was our president <laughs> helping you follow the he game he was giving me some tips he's going to help me fill out my bracket so uh, <laughs> and yeah. he's going to teach me cricket yeah that's, oh, the deal. No. Oh, that's right that's because the i don't deal.
3: understand what's going on with that cricket do you play? see any similarities between this game and football.
1: Yeah, I see a lot of you know, how you have to mark people, how you have to be quick on the break, how you have to try and uh, play as a team. I think there's a lot of similarities, but it's very fast. And that's Adam. That's what you do with a pool TV camera. If you are, if you position the president and the prime minister in courtside seats, an aide brings them a hot dog. Uh, the pool camera is probably 20 feet away, long enough to see them enjoying the uh, the, the victuals of the game. Uh, And then they do this interview. And just as fast as they're watching some of the first round, they're back in Air Force One, heading back to Washington to, to resume their official schedule.
2: One of the things that was really interesting to me this week, which showed a level of savvy that I did not know that the Obama administration was capable of, was a story that they placed and obviously worked on for some time with Brian Williams and his show Rock Center. Did you catch
1: this, Josh? Did I catch that, Adam? You know, I pay a lot of attention to the official gifts given back and forth between the president and prime minister. And I know that the prime minister brought for President Obama a ping pong table reminiscent of the one that they played on together on President Obama's 2009 trip to Great Britain. Can you remind us what, president, what Prime Minister Cameron got from President Obama? Absolutely. Pr- uh, prime Minister Cameron, again
2: reminiscent of some time that they shared together uh, in London, uh, he was given a very special, handcrafted, American-made barbecued grill. This comes from a small metalworking shop in rural Illinois. It is crafted 100% by American products and American hands and it is like not this is not your Weber grill out on your back porch this is something that uh, the Cameron family will enjoy for decades to come but it, it, it's reminiscent of some time that they shared together while they were barbecuing when the president was visiting with the Prime Minister and this is how uh, these two men have continued to forge and show the rest of us how sincerely they seem to care for one another in taking the time to give a gift that was significant and also paid tribute to to, uh, in this case, uh, an American-made element which is so avant-garde and so in the need uh, for the American economy right now.
1: Well, you know, Adam, the phrase is the special relationship. And it goes back, I think, to uh, President Roosevelt, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the time that Churchill lived in the White House with Roosevelt at the beginning of World War II. Uh, You certainly saw it manifested between President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair... And Tony Blair and Clinton's successor, George W. Bush. And we've got a great guest today who has so much of that personal experience with President Bush, don't we?
2: We do. Uh, Karen Hughes is someone that many people who are close watchers of politics thought they knew a great deal about and then she fell off a lot of folks' radar. She was an integral part of the 2000 campaign. She came to Washington as counselor to the president and she had the entire communications portfolio in her hands and uh, ultimately left the White House uh, in the second year of the presidency. But she came back and then she ultimately uh, has gone on to be a leader in corporate communications where she has joined forces with our other big guest today, Mark Penn, someone with whom you worked in the Clinton administration, Josh.
1: That's right. Mark Penn and I go way back. You and I have talked on a couple occasions here on Polyoptics about the situation that President Bill Clinton faced in the fall of 1994 after the disastrous midterm elections in which Democrats lost power in Congress. And I was working in the White House from the very beginning, and and, uh, there was a team really working that included uh, Dick Morris and also Mark Penn and Doug Schoen. And as time passed, and Dick Morris eventually left the campaign in 1996, and and as did Doug Schoen, Mark Penn stayed and has stayed a close advisor to President Clinton ever since, advised Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2000 uh, and for the Senate, and then uh, her reelection and then her presidential campaign in 2008. And I had the great good fortune of learning so much from Mark as he was advising the White House, and I was actually implementing a lot of the event and message ideas that came through Mark's polls. Uh, I actually then went to work for Mark uh, in early 2001 and learned the really how to communicate in the C-suite, and the oval office is really the the mother of all c-suites you're talking to the president of the united states but between times in which you are a presidential advisor people like mark penn and karen hughes who we are so lucky to have on our broadcast today are in the c-suites talking to ceos presidents chairman board of directors about how to navigate through uh, issues crises and basically just strategic marketing against your competition so uh... Without further ado, welcome Mark Penn, Karen Hughes, to Polyoptics. Thank you so much, Josh.
0: Thank you. Delighted to be here. Uh,
1: Mark and Karen, uh, let's pick up exactly where we are at the present. Um, earlier this week, uh, there are a, a series of new polls out which show a dramatic dip for President Obama's approval ratings from what had been sort of a a methodical measure upward from sort of a low point last year. And Mark and Karen, you've been writing about, you've been tracking President Obama's approval uh, from that time writing for Time magazine, and you opine this week about what may be behind the most recent numbers for
3: President Obama. Mark, can you start us off and tell us what you think is going on? Sure. I wouldn't call it <clears throat> a dramatic decline, but I, I, I would call it a, a disappointing decline. Because I think the the emerging storyline was the economy was getting better, the president was seeming tough, the campaign was getting together, fundraising was going well. I think a lot of people expected those polls to show Obama going up. Instead, he went down, and I think that it was a signal that he, that President Obama has not as yet found the key to the door of re-election. The people are still wondering how strong a leader he is. Is he in control of the economy? Is he in the center enough? I think they're still looking to have those questions answered. They may be looking to have a lot of questions answered on Romney, but they're also having, asking a lot of questions about the president as well. Which means we've got a restive and volatile electorate.
0: And I think the trend of the, of the declining, uh, the turnaround in his in his disapproval ratings um, was was actually pretty striking, given what's happening in the Republican primary. Most of the news and attention has been on the contested Republican primary, and what that says to me is the american people who've been unhappy for some time and and are anxious deeply anxious about the direction of the country that there're some other things that they're now very concerned about and i think they don't see president obama as being an effective president in fact not only is his disapproval now higher than his approval in these two recent major polls, but for every issue tested, people now disapprove of his handling of those issues, from, from gas prices to energy policy to his handling of the economy to even foreign policy, which up till now had been a strength. They're now very concerned about his handling of, of the situation in Iran, with the potential that Iran will, will obtain nuclear weapons. They're even concerned about Afghanistan. And so I think it's a, it's a very anxious time, and that this, is, this shows how vulnerable President Obama is in this election year, and I think underscores how much the Republican nomination is worth fighting for.
2: Karen, uh, one of the things that you point out in Time magazine, which I really enjoyed you pointing us towards, is this idea, as you just mentioned, that on individual issues, the story Uh, or the narrative of approval or disapproval is much more stark than the top line. Uh, And and you talk about alarm bells going off and you talk about a failure to perform. Um, Is this all evidence based or is this something that you feel is a perception on the part of the American people of this president right now?
0: Well you know I think it's a combination uh, first of all i 've said for some time President Obama has undercut the central rationale of his presidency he He ran not on a set of specific issues but on this idea, this idea of being post partisan hope and change, and that he could he could you know make our politics higher and better and then Unfortunately, his actions in governing have totally undercut that idea, and once that bubble is burst it 's very hard to get it back and i 've got friends who actually Tend to be more mainstream, maybe even lean conservative voters who voted for President Obama because they felt very, they responded to his idealistic rhetoric. They now feel betrayed and would never vote for him again. There's a combination between the the perception, the big-picture perception that he has not governed in the way he talked about, and then also concern about these individual issues. I mean, the gas prices, as I say in the time piece, are a kitchen table issue, the kind of thing people complain about at their dinner table every night. And you see them on every corner as you drive by. And so it's a combination of his actions that have undercut the central premise, I think, on which he was elected, and then failure to perform on some of these critical issues that have impact people's lives.
2: Mark Penn, you, uh, as you are often uh, credited with doing, not only see a problem, but point out solutions. And in the same way that Karen's talking about first principles, you think that this is a time to get back to first principles. Uh, outline what, what you think the president needs to do uh, in, in light of these numbers.
3: Well, I think first and foremost, the, the, the president needs to be a president, not a candidate. There's Too much politicking too early by the president, even though we're coming now to, to, the, to the stretch, they're going to reelect a president. And it was always very important. And Josh knows in the reelection of President Clinton, we didn't actually even announce that we were running for the presidency right. because, because you want to be the president who's serving uh, for reelection. Uh, second, he's got to be very concerned about the strength of leadership he is projecting. How he winds his way through these intricate international problems, but but he's got to have a comprehensive economic plan. The number one, two, and three issues here are: is our economy going to get better, and how we have to. He's got to get out of kind of uh, policies in which go after the problem of the moment, whether it's jobs or the deficit, and say, look, we've got to streamline government. We've got to reduce the overall size of government. As you recall, President Clinton said the era of big government is over. I think that's where the American public still is. And he's got to have an economic program that really underscores how America wins in the 21st century. How we win with an emerging strong Asian and Latin American economies, how we get the right education, how we have the right jobs, how we deal with trade, you know, how we really deal with a new economy that is even newer than it was during President Clinton's time. When there's vast opportunity, the very best jobs are going unfilled in this country right now because we don't have enough well-educated people who could really drive America forward. And he's not really hitting those messages hard enough, strong enough, and clear enough.
0: I think you just underscored what, what, what the president's the problem is. I mean, President Clinton was a was a pro-business, mainstream Democrat, and I think what, what you just said sounds very reasonable even to my Republican ears. The problem is those aren't the things that President Obama focuses on.
3: Let's remember that President Obama did save the financial system. He did step in and do some things here that were very strong for the economy. He was dealt a very tough hand. And let's not forget, Karen, that despite where his numbers are, President Bush would have loved to have numbers as high as these as in his second term.
0: I would argue that it was President Bush who deserves the credit for saving the economy by, by taking that very difficult step of of uh, passing the, the temporary assistance that that really saved the global economy from crashing. It was a very difficult political decision for him. It was a very difficult personal decision because, philosophically, he does not like to see government step in. But in that case, with the world economy teetering at the brink, he felt he had to. And I never miss an opportunity to point out that almost all that money has now been entirely repaid with interest to the federal government.
1: And we had uh, Karen Steve Ratner on our show a few weeks ago, and he gave... Full credit to President Bush and Secretary Paulson for making the tough calls that they did in the summer and fall of 2008. And they also paid appropriate respect for President, to President Obama, Secretary Geithner, for following through on those programs and helping the American auto industry get to where it is today. Let's take a trip back in time for a minute uh, and hear some of President Clinton's 1996 State of the Union address, that very soundbite that Mark referenced.
2: The era of big government is
1: over. But but we cannot go back to the time when our citizens were left to fend for themselves so Mark and karen both let's let 's take a trip for the remainder of our, our conversation together into the yellow oval room of the executive mansion, advising the President of the United States, uh, and then we 'll also take a trip into boston and and, and advise. Uh, perhaps his likely opponent, uh, Mitt Romney, about where to go from here. Mark, the spring of 1996 we were, and 1995, we were doing the V-chip, uh, kids smoking, school uniforms, 100,000 more police on the street, anti-tobacco efforts. Can you share with our listeners the process as a pollster of gathering ideas and testing them with Swing voters, and then how you would actually because I've always said you are an amazing storyteller, but a storyteller with data. How you would go through the process of persuading not only the president and his wife, but the coterie of aides who may go into a yellow oval room sort of skeptical of some of your conclusions?
3: Well, look, I I think at the time we held critical weekly strategy meetings, the president and the entire team, policy and political. Uh, and, and I think the president understood that that good policy is good politics. And he he didn't divorce the two. And so the process that we went through was really about what's the president going to be doing for the country? What direction does he want to take it? Where does he want to go? and And to the extent then that we took a lot of agenda items each week, I'd kind of visit the director of uh, of policy and and his assistant, who's now in the Supreme Court. At one, uh, and we'd go through what policies were being considered, how the public would respond to them, how they fit in with the fact the president was making a statement. The era of big government's over. We're not going to let people fend for themselves. Uh, how, <clears throat> However, he was an activist president out there doing something for the people every single day. And the president used to say about the meetings, these meetings give us the edge, the fact that we sit down every week. And we'd go through the polling numbers, we'd go through the details of the policies, we'd go through the politics, and the president would really make the decision, actually not at the meeting, but after he took his own uh, his own counsel. But these meetings were a way of moving the campaign forward and making sure that the president <clears throat> was A, president first, B, he was reinforcing that he was making a difference every day in people's lives. Now you remember at the time, uh, Josh, soccer moms were the primary target of that campaign. Yep. And so a lot of policies, V-chips and others, followed from the fact that we changed who the new target was. Women had gone into the workforce, their kids were in school, they were really concerned about them, there were a whole series of new policies that hadn't really been thought of yet that the president got behind. Today, President Obama faces yet a new nation, with new groups emerging. You know, this is the oldest electorate in in, in history. The Hispanics may break. Uh, the Latinos may break ten percent for the for the first time. Women remain fifty four percent. Twenty six percent of the of the voting population in the last election makes over a hundred thousand dollars there's a whole new professional class this team in the white house today has to look at america as it is in two thousand twelve which is not how it was in nineteen ninety-six and create the policies that give us a new future one of the things that i think
2: is so interesting was this sort of ability to reconnect if you will uh, that mark facilitated for for president clinton around this time but karen hughes uh, you served uh, in the administration as counselor to the president with uh, a huge portfolio of all communications uh, in the White House uh, underneath you. And really, your job was to what you delivered on connecting the governor of Texas to the American people. It was about keeping that connection alive. Is that a fair assessment?
0: I think that that is fair. I also um, actually when, when President Bush named me counsellor the second day at the white House i I knew I was managing all the communications functions of the White House, which meant press secretary, media relations, speech writing, et cetera um, but I, but I wasn't sure what the broader counselor part went. So I, I walked into the Oval Office and I said, now exactly what is it that you want me to do around here? <laughs> and his answer was, was, was short, but the job was huge. He said, I want you to go to meetings where major decisions are made. Every meeting where a major decision is made, I want you to tell the people in the room how I would approach that decision, and then I want you to tell me what you really think and and the reason i think he did that were a couple of reasons one is he knew i knew his philosophy and his core approach to governing and how he would view an issue and he wanted to make sure as we suddenly expanded from the state of texas to national and international stage that the people that were making you know formulating recommendations for him understood his values and how he would approach something and then secondly, he, I'd always promised him that I would give him my unvarnished opinion, and so he knew that he could count on me to to deliver to him what I really thought. He also understood, which I think is really important, and I see this in the corporate world a lot too, um, some people unfortunately think that communications is something that, that happens down the hall, that, that after a decision is made, the communicators go and communicate it. And that really is not at all effective in today's day and age, because what you do communicates a lot more powerfully often than what you say. And so I feel both in the C-suite of the companies that we talk with now, and also in the Oval Office of the President of the United States, um, communicators have to be involved in in thinking through and understanding the implications of policy decisions, because all of those communicate sometimes even more powerfully than than the words of a president. Um, Josh, I was going to just quickly address what we did. Mark Mark has actually taught me a lot about the value of data. I used to pride myself on thinking I could do this by instinct. And and now I think I still apply my instincts and my my creative insights, but uh, I've learned to appreciate more the grounding of data. But in 2004, what we faced in the White House in in our re-election campaign was obviously a world where September 11th of 2001 had defined a lot of the uh, the situation that we found ourselves in the in the first uh, term of the Bush presidency, and so in 2004, as we started thinking about re-election, we couldn't promise people that that they were safe yet, because we still thought that Al Qaeda had capability to attack us. We knew they wanted to do so, and so we came up with a with a theme for his re-election where we said we were safer, safer, stronger, and better and i think that spoke to the fact that we felt we were safer than we had been on september tenth of two thousand eleven we would taken actions to make the country safer we were stronger as a nation because we had been through this and it, it had brought the country together in many ways and we were also better and that that spoke to some of the um, things we were doing to fight hiv aids in africa for example and and the education agenda and some of the compassion uh... part of the compassionate conservative agenda and so that's the way i tried to approach things, was to, was to frame things in a way that spoke to uh, where the country was and, we, and also where we were heading.
1: It sounds a lot like meeting America's challenges and protecting America's <laughs> values, uh, the, the, the mantra of, of 1996. Um, it, Mark Penn, in your commentary in Time Magazine, you exp- on various occasions, you express a lot of thanks. Uh, thanks to this GOP field that for all of the weaknesses that both you and Karen have pointed out about this president, he still remains in a, uh, a fairly strong position for re-election based on the his opponents that he's facing today. And so, Mark and Karen, if you guys were both summoned to Boston uh, for a critical meeting with Governor Romney about how to create the theme for his campaign going forward, what would you say on that first meeting, and then what would you do?
0: I, I think that... On a couple of issues that that the Romney campaign can be much more effective in relating his background and experience to the needs of the country, um, and so for example in in business he um, he went in and cut costs and made businesses that were failing succeed and that's exactly what we need in washington dc we we need someone to come in and figure out how to restrain the size of government how to cut the deficits, how to make government more effective and more capable at at what it's able to do people are deeply deeply concerned about the direction of the country particularly that the growth of deficits and, and um they understand that we have to have a major change and i think that the romney campaign can do a much better job of relating that that's what he does that's that's what he's really good at he's a he's a turnaround artist in a in a government that desperately needs to be turned around in a country that needs to be turned around i also think that that Perhaps because he is Mormon, the, the campaign has, has shied away from talking about who he is at his core. Obviously, he's a person of faith, and his faith is very important to him. Um, and I think people have to see more what drives him. who Who is he, and why does he want to be president? And, and um, he's lived a life of faithful service to his faith and to his family. I, I had an email from a pastor friend of mine who said they were really impressed when they saw his income tax returns, but how much money he'd given to his church. And so he lives his his values. And I think, again, perhaps because he is Mormon, and that's, that's different for many Americans, they've, they've shied away from that. But I think they have done so, frankly, at, at his peril, because it, it presents an incomplete picture of who he really is as a person and what he really values. And I think they've got to do a more effective job of, of showing that.
2: Mark Penn, what's your take?
3: Well, uh, you know, as I've said a number of times, first, the Republican Party has had a choice for a long time, Romney or suicide. It appears uh, that they. So not a
2: colorful. Isn't headline he a great? He's a great
1: magazine. storyteller.
2: Well, he started off a, a, a column in February by saying that Newt Gingrich is a great candidate in the way that the Titanic was a great ship. I love it. Uh, I'll tell you, for <laughs> a numbers guy, he, he, uh, Mark Penn delivers on Can the you, imagery of political <laughs> language. Can you look,
3: imagine him with a CEO in the middle of a crisis? Adam, it gets your attention. <laughs> I was going to say, well, the choices Romney or suicide, and now they've been choosing both for a long time. <laughs> uh, and and I think that that look, if you're if you're sitting there. Uh, and Romney, assuming he gets enough delegates and he comes through, he he actually has to look to 1992. And President Clinton's primaries (laughs) were no bed of roses either. Uh, Jerry Brown was there for a long time. Uh, His image had been, you know, really (laughs) raked over the coals, yet he won. Uh, But his emergence biography story that came out of that convention with the bus tour was picture perfect between the man from hope. So first and foremost, Romney, who's going to come out of this thing, if he does, and I think he will, badly damaged, because particularly with independent voters, uh, has got to come out strong telling people who he is, why he's there, what he stands for, how his values and his bio associate with his run for the presidency in the same way, with the right film, with the right tour, with the right convention speech. And, and then he, you gotta realize 40% of American voters now basically are independents. The biggest party is no party. It's very interesting that you point that out. Of course,
2: Karen uh, Hughes uh, and and Mark Penn joining us here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124, Karen Hughes this week uh, points out that the president is suffering with independence. Uh, She has made the point over the last month or so, uh, really focusing people on the idea that that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that Mitt Romney, the alternative view is that he's battle-tested, Karen, Right.
0: Absolutely, and, and I think Mark knows that from going through the Democratic primary process the last time when, when Hillary Clinton and, and President Obama had about as close a primary as you could have, and then President Obama went on to win in November. And so uh, I do think that... Um, you know there have been some things that have happened that that have, we would have preferred not to have happened i i didn't like as a conservative hearing the attacks from republican candidates on president on um governor romney's business career i mean as republicans we believe in the free enterprise system and and it was uh... frankly shocking for for us to hear some republicans like governor rick perry and, and newt gingrich you know attack um the free enterprise system and so so that that was um... It, probably not, I wouldn't think, good for our, our party. Um, and, uh, but, but I do think that, that um, at every occasion thus far, Governor Romney has risen to the occasion and has seemed to relish doing so. He, he hasn't been complaining about the process. He, he, he said he had a great line, I think, after he won Florida, where he said, uh, competitive primary does not uh, divide us, it prepares us. And and so I th- I think that our candidates are going to be prepared. And I remember in two thousand four um, when when I rejoined, you know, I left the White House in two thousand two, and I but I promised the president I would come back and, and travel. Reincarnated
2: with him. at the State Department as an ambassador.
0: I would went to that in two thousand five to the State Department. That's right. But in two thousand four, I went back and traveled with President Bush in the last months of the of the campaign. And I remember how difficult it was to prepare for debates because he hadn't been debating. He hadn't mm. debated since two thousand. And so President Obama hasn't debated. Now it'll be four years when he comes to the fall debates, and yet Mitt Romney and the Republicans debated ad nauseum. So, so they're going to be very prepared, whereas the president is going to be a little rusty,
4: probably. I Nobody want to take the I
2: want to take our audience to a place that they 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 might not be aware of, and that is that Mark Penn and Karen Hughes not only uh, joined together in this piece in Time Magazine, they are business partners. Mark is the global CEO of uh, one of the most powerful uh, public relations firms in the world, Burson Marsteller, and Karen Hughes is a global vice chair. You bring this team, this experience in the Oval Office and politics to your corporate clients, you have defined and in your case, Mark and Karen, innovated uh the way that campaign uh takes place uh in a communications realm. I want you to talk for a second. This week, there was a bit of a a, a hand grenade thrown into the offices of of Goldman Sachs. And Mark Penn, you were on the Today Show. When you turn to someone to understand what is a crisis, how do you deal with it? Well, of course, Lisa Myers of NBC News turned to you. You shared your thoughts on this. But but bring us along. This was free media, but the worst sort of commentary on Wall Street. And it feeds into some of these political narratives that we're hearing in, in the 2012 campaign trail.
3: Well, I think Mr. Smith uh, was very determined, very careful, and strategic in what he was trying to do uh, to essentially blow up the the image of of Goldman Sachs even further than it has been through the financial crisis. I I think he got the equivalent of $100 million of paid advertising. Hey, negative advertising, and that means uh, a company like Goldman Sachs, with 30,000 employees, has 29,999 potential ambassadors that they're going to have to deploy. I think it's a a real problem. It's the kind of problem we would normally poll and see what the real dimensions are. But it's the kind of problem in today's world. We tell the tell the CEO, you got to get out there. You got to have an online strategy. You've got to convert, you know, your employees into ambassadors, and and you may have to make some clear Visible statements and changes that that reassure everyone that customers are first, which is a critically important message that you can't let be owned by an opponent or someone who's a former employee who's written an op-ed.
1: I got to say, Mark and Karen, uh, it, it, and this is a realm, Mark, that you and I worked in together uh, in some corporate consulting uh, earlier in the de- in uh, the last decade. But you can't imagine probably a worse uh, unexpected crisis scenario than um, of the 30,000 people who work for you, one of them, uh, in this case, Greg Smith, uh, who works in London, strategically sends an email resigning his position. And then minutes later, the New York Times posts probably an 850 word uh, essay in the smack in the middle. Of their op-ed page, why I resigned from Goldman Sachs today, uh, was the hands-down topic of conversation uh, around water coolers th- from Wall Street to Washington and all around the world this week. Uh, and Goldman Sachs scrambling uh, to divine its message begins with a internal letter leaked outside from Lloyd Blankfein and Gary Cohn, talking mostly about an. Um, an associate survey that talks about how much uh, uh, Goldman people think that they're, they're doing the right thing. Mark, what are the first couple steps that you would take, and Karen, uh, if Burst and Marstella were brought in, uh, in to assist damage control in a situation like this?
3: Well, uh, as I said, first thing, and we've, we've done a lot of these, we really kind of understand what do people believe today? What do they believe of this fellow and, and what is it really going to take for them to understand uh, what what our culture is wh- and, and what we care about uh, and and get a sense of that. Now, I, as I said, you know, that means organizing the CEO. Remember, this was actually Jake Sewerts, I think, his first day. This is so, his third <laughs> so, day on the so, second day so on the job he's got, oh, Jake. He's going to be, you know, handling this. And, and, and then I think it means putting together a couple of things that happen today and tomorrow things that, that are then more medium term, right, and the kind of reassurances, look, the, the device of an internal memo that's supposed to go external, that's okay, but that's still signif- signifying that you're not dealing with it as strongly directly uh, to all the clients. It's unfortunate, you know, that one person now with a comment, remember, he, he, Mr. Smith didn't say that anything was illegal, but he said, look, the culture is, is abandoning the customer and it's changed in a way. In a fundamental way, and and so I think that you know normally you'd expect a CEO might go out and give an interview, right? Go out and directly engage on it.
0: I would think a little anger is appropriate here. I mean, if I were if I worked at Goldman Sachs and I were an executive there, and I I um, had some uh, one disgruntled employee do something like this to my firm, I'd be a little hot about it. And I think they need to show a little of that. And I think they need to have. You know, someone go out who who cares passionately about his or her clients and talk about that and say that's not at all the culture. The, 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 the culture that was defined by Mr. Smith is not at all the the, the, the the culture that I grew up in, that I work in, that I bring to my job every day. And we've got to hear that more aggressively from them. I always I always say to to corporate executives that in today's world um, a company has to operate much like a political candidate. You have to define yourself or someone else is going to define you. And Goldman Sachs just allowed itself to be defined by a very strategic, uh, smartly placed opinion editorial in the New York Times. And they're going to have to be, I think, much more aggressive in, in responding to it. I think they also, Mark mentioned this, but I think there may also be some things they have to do, not just things they say. Um, They do have to have their employees be ambassadors. They're going to have to uh, do some aggressive outreach with their clients because, again, who's going to take this most seriously? Everybody's talking about it, but if you were a Goldman Sachs client, how would you be feeling? (laughs) And so I think they're going to have to do some aggressive outreach to their clients. I think they're going to have to do a lot more communications, and I think the CEO and other leading executives need to be out publicly uh, a, a lot more.
1: There was a terrible news this week about uh, the alleged massacre of Afghan civilians by an American staff sergeant. Is there a way forward after something like this for America's involvement in Afghanistan?
3: You know, it's it, it's it's going to be difficult. But it was a, it, you know, the president gave a very sincere, very specific, you know, apology for what what was. You know, we don't know exactly why uh, the, the soldier did that, but it's, it's, it's almost like a Dr. Strangelove strategy here where he, he went in to blow things up, I think, in a, in a, in a horrible, destructive way uh, of human life, uh, of an important effort. Uh, and, uh, it, it, no, it is, it is not, not going to be easy uh, to overcome that. It, it takes time, uh, diligence, uh, and, and American patience, if you look at the polls, has already run out. So when you look when you look at this country and in the and in the, whether American patience is running out is they want to know is the financial community going to rise to the economic challenges? They, they want to know whether as a country we're going to be able to rise to the challenges of terrorism and division and sectarianism uh, that that are emerging. You know these are difficult times. I, I think they're difficult for both Obama, Obama and and Romney and and the person who who is going to win and and I do think. I do think Obama's a, a lot better placed, having been battle-tested for the, the last three years than, than Karen is maybe suggesting, but, but I do think the person who's going to win is the person who's going to once again convince the American people that he can meet these two big challenges that we're facing.
2: Mark Penn, Karen Hughes, uh, both the upper leadership of Burson-Marcelor and uh, public servants and advisor to presidents, we're very glad that you took time to be with us here in Polyoptics. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for having us.
1: Adam that was a great conversation with uh, Mark Penn and Karen Hughes I am over the
2: moon I mean if you're listening to us on Polyoptics here on Sirius XM124 you have to understand that two of the most important communicators in America just sat down for this show this is what POTUS does the brand that is POTUS we've got that kind of reach and Josh of course with his great relationship with Mark Penn and his work experience with him we just sat down and had a conversation I'm still reeling from it
1: well you know what I've always admired about Mark and told him many times is, you know, his ability as a storyteller is uh, is really unparalleled. And, you know, you meet him for the first time and you say, well, what wisdom is going to is going to come forth from what Mark has? And, he, you know, he usually has a sheaf of papers, the most recent. Oh, he didn't sort disappoint either. Wrought... Sitting in the studio with me, that whole papers were everywhere. It was like a, a flurry of paper. You know, and but he but but you can put this paper in front of him the, the sort of uh, raw cross tabs from your most recent poll and he'll sort of muse on it for a couple of minutes and then a storyline will develop a narrative. I mean, the the whole we use that word, Adam, narrative over and over again on the show. And it really sort of came to came into political being with Dick Morris, Doug Schoen and Mark Penn and Mark perpetuated it. Uh, through the end of the Clinton years, into Hillary's campaigns for the Senate, and in and in her presidential campaign, and Mark knows how to sort of sketch out what the narrative ought to be. Ultimately, you know, he ran into a phenomenon in uh, in Barack Obama and a, a and a challenged Hillary Clinton campaign. I've always thought that you know the words that came out of uh, Senator Clinton's mouth were great, but the presentation on the Obama. Te- campaign was so much better marks great with words marks great with narrative uh but the obama campaign figured out the marketing angle
2: yeah no doubt uh and karen hughes to her credit uh is one of the most impactful uh communicators i have ever had the opportunity to meet her ability to help uh governor of texas george w bush become president uh was found at every single turn from statements of policy to the kinds of bumper sticker slogans like reformer with results that really got people thinking, yeah, I, I'd like to sit down with George W. Bush. He's one of us.
1: Well, Adam, last week, you know, I riffed extensively on having uh, gone to the New York premiere of Game Change. Uh, and I was I was Waxing so enthusiastic about the movie, uh, it turns out that I wasn't alone. I think it's HBO's most successful uh, single standalone movie in about eight years. Uh, as to remind our our listeners, the movie focuses principally on the. Roles of Nicole Wallace, uh, communications aide brought in to help Sarah Palin, the vice presidential nominee, uh, get ready for her major interviews, and mostly on Steve Schmidt, played in the movie uh, by Woody Harrelson uh who was brought in to work with Rick Davis. Uh Rick Davis remained the campaign manager of the McCain campaign, but Steve was really running the day to day operations, uh brought with him experience from the uh the Bush campaign in two thousand four uh and many campaigns before that. Uh st- and began life actually Adam as an Eagle Scout. We're so happy to have uh Steve Schmidt on the phone with us today from Nevada. Steve?
4: Hey how you doing guys?
1: How's the last week gone for you?
3: Well, it
4: was a strange, strange week. It's a it's a very strange experience in life to watch something like that, um, you know, especially in a big crowd of people. But, um, you know, I think it's a movie that people are responding to because they understand, I think, at a gut level that this is the reality of American politics. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, it makes people pause and think a little bit about our process and whether it's serving what we want it to serve as we try to move the country forward out of uh... out of some very very serious times um, you know i think there's some important lessons in it and you know and I and if it makes people pause i'm i'm happy about that
1: steve i i want uh... Um, go back to the the very beginning when you when woody harrelson comes on screen as you and yeah. you're talking to uh... senator mccain on the phone you're walking uh, somewhere, or at least Woody is walking somewhere with a golden retriever. Wonder if that's really uh, your breed. Uh, but Senator, Mc- y- you're you're giving him practical advice on how to get his campaign uh, energized, and he at- he says something like, uh, "Steve, I I want you to join the campaign full time," and you wince, uh, or at least Woody winces. Was that a true to life wince, and-, and why were you reluctant at the time to join the campaign?
4: well I, I run governor Schwarzenegger's campaign and uh, we had moved my wife and I my wife we had a we had a baby who was less than a year old and I had a young daughter and we were happy I was a partner in a business in 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 California and um, the uh, McCain campaign had been turbulent it collapsed in the summer of 2007 and had a series of conversations with John McCain where we talked about the campaign. You know, one of the scenes there, it says, you know, the country first logo, attributing it to me, it was really, you know, came up with at a later time, you know, by, by, you know, John McCain's great speechwriter, Mark Salter. But we had a we had a series of discussions about how to get back in the race, and you know, ultimately, I wound up joining the, you know, the, the caravan full time, and. You know something that a lot of people don't know, but I, I was actually a volunteer on the campaign all the way through until the middle of September. You know when I got my first type of compensation at all in the campaign. I mean it was you know trying to trying to help out someone I really respected and admired.
2: The movie brings us, and you've already talked about uh, its authenticity, at least in regard to what is really like behind the scenes in a political campaign, yeah. in our political life today, but but it does bring us to uh, a very personal relationship with you as a character. Uh, the viewer begins to sympathize very early on, I think, uh, with, with Steve Schmidt, somebody who's trying to be a leader in, in the campaign, somebody who's uh, guiding the, the presidential candidate, but also dealing with all of the the hiccups that come and the and the pivots that need to be made and the corrections that will keep this campaign on track. And I wonder when you look back at it, not just through the lens of the movie or Woody Harrelson, who's just slightly better looking than you are, Steve, but... Um, what you learned ultimately from that campaign and, and is this something uh, i know you're with edelman now uh do you expect steve schmidt to be taking a role in a presidential campaign again sometime soon
4: you never said never about campaigns like i've come to find like over my career but you know it's something that i i had the opportunity to do twice I as I was in the middle of two presidential campaigns and um you know winning is more fun than losing but um you know, it's a um, it's a it's a very very demanding enterprise that's all consuming, and I don't know that I'll ever have the desire to do that again. And you know, so you never say never, but like I highly highly doubt it.
2: And what about takeaway? What about lessons? Um, you know, I bet you didn't think that a movie of this caliber was going to be made about your experiences in this campaign. Uh, uh, and people will will have their own takeaways. But when when you think back now on your experiences in in both of those campaigns but but most recently in 08 what did you learn what are you bringing to your corporate practice today that you really picked up on the campaign trail and and, in the battle tested way that you you've worked
4: you can never rush to decisions you have to think through everything methodically in a thorough process where there's transparency by everyone who's involved in decision making where there's really an honest dialogue that you don't allow yourself to engage in wishful thinking, you stay rigorous and not, about not making assumptions that are prejudiced by the disposition of your opinion in the first place. Um, you know, for me, it was an experience of failed decision-making, you know, really in a process that I didn't think served John McCain pretty well. I just think there's a lot of lessons to be you know, to be learned from it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the vice right presidential decision should be made in a way that a president makes a decision, not in the way a candidate makes a decision in the context of a presidential campaign. And they're, they're just two totally different decision making processes. And, you know, we didn't have bad intentions. Um, when she was announced, I believe she had been fully and completely vetted. And it, you know, became clear in the days ahead that there had been huge gaps and understanding how that happened, why it happened, um, the conditions that allowed it to happen. I think they're just an important case study for people who will be in the decision-making chairs going forward so they can avoid making the same mistakes because the times are too serious and we fundamentally serious people in these jobs.
1: Steve, another another phrase that comes to mind as I uh, think back to Uh, having read Game Change originally from Mark and John, and I've known Mark since the 1992 campaign, and John uh, is a guy I play poker with sometimes in New York. Um, But what the book depicted, and what you always sort of imagined might be open to some debate until you saw the movie and then you saw some of the press that you were doing and you fundamentally didn't uh, push back on any of the scenes depicted, was Steve Schmidt comes to a campaign with a ton Of intestinal fortitude. Uh, You have to go into Senator McCain's uh, uh, inner sanctum many times, deliver some really crappy news to him. You also have to dress down uh, a sitting governor of the state of Alaska on several occasions and try to get her in line. Now, you're the son of a school teacher and a businessman, a tight end on the football team in high school, and as I said, an Eagle Scout. But as you're thinking about how you advise in in business today and and what you have to tell a client where do you look back in as the as where you found the intestinal fortitude that be, that allows you to go to very powerful people and deliver some very bad news
4: i think you look around and you see fundamentally there's two types of people there's a much larger group of people who will say whatever they believe the principal wants to hear in order to curry favor with them and there's a smaller group of people that always give direct advice and you know I had the great privilege of working for Vice President Cheney and when I started out working for the Vice President he said to me here's what you know President Ford said to me when I worked for him he said you know that you know always remember you can come in here at any time and give me your opinion on anything but you know, I'm in the decision-making business, you know, and you're in the opinion-giving business, (laughs) and um, I just think you owe the people that you work for to give them, you know, dead honest, square advice about where things are, where they stand, and try to maintain a calm demeanor, you know, amidst the chaos that just swirls around you, and, you know, different campaigns have different cultures, you know, the Bush campaign was a much calmer culture than the McCain campaign, but you know to try to maintain equilibrium in that space is is one of the things you focus on.
2: You are serving now as the Vice Chair of uh, Public Affairs at Edelman which is one of the largest firms in the country. Sure. We had a chance earlier uh, in this broadcast actually to have uh, Mark Penn and Karen Hughes on. Uh, talk to us for a second about how you assimilate all of the experience you've had in campaigns to giving advice to CEOs and to corporations, they move at a snail's pace compared to what you're used to. It's,
4: It um, you know, campaigns require, you know. Certainly, as Mark and Karen would know well, you know, two of two of the best in the in the business, um, you know, who give advice, and, and and you know, I'm privileged to get to work for Richard Edelman, who I think is visionary in this whole space and one of the great guys you could ever you could ever work with and meet. Is that? Um, you, you you have to make decisions in campaigns, and it, it requires you to assess a situation realistically, holistically, to evaluate it. To say what are our objectives, how do we get there, how do we put rigor around the process that we're using to get there, how do we measure progress or regression on a on a daily basis, and you know how do we communicate what we need to communicate, defend. You know, from narratives that are being communicated about us by people who agree with us. Um, you know, to do all of those things, you know, increasingly for corporations and, and, you know, all manner of of, of uh, nonprofit organizations, you know, that there's a requirement to help them communicate both at a technical level, like how do you operate in a, in a digital environment to, you know, how do you communicate and tell your story most effectively in a fractured media universe and you know so there's a lot of applicable skills from from politics to to, to this
1: Steve you you managed both uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's uh, re-election campaign and Senator McCain's campaign and those are two very different principles in terms of having a a, a guy who you can Develop a schedule for who you can do very physical, very visual things with. Who can play very much to the lines that are created, and, and can really uh, can really nail some stuff on the stump the way uh, Governor Schwarzenegger could. And McCain was was very much the opposite. You know, he was very much a, a guy who was comfortable in his own skin, but his own skin was not an actor for the camera. How how difficult was it to go from uh, from One very visual campaign to one that was going to have to be uh, based on on the the back door, the the sort of back room charisma of McCain. That is such a great question.
4: Well, I think all of these campaigns are 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 different, of course, because of of who the candidate is. But you know, I've never really thought about it through that you know through that prism. Um, Tend to approach the campaigns through the prism of what is the What is the strategic roadmap that we have to execute in order to get to where we want to be? And, you know, in in Governor Schwarzenegger's campaign, it was, you know, it was the case that we were coming from behind. We had to come from behind in the McCain campaign in the primary, ultimately, you know, in the general election. Um, So... You know, the primary difference would be is that, you know, the environment around Arnold Schwarzenegger got a little bit better during that campaign, while the environment around John McCain just got a whole lot worse. So you're just, you know, you're you're just dealing in an environment when you're on a campaign where you're outspent by $250 million versus where we had the spending advantage on Schwarzenegger. You know, you just feel like the walls are coming in on you at the end.
2: Absolutely phenomenal. And I, I, I just, you've been out a lot over this week talking and giving uh, people some insight into your personal experience. And for you to take time to join us on PolyOptics and, and talk about your experience plus the visual nature uh, of the politics that you've helped direct it at the highest levels has made a real uh, big impact on this show and our audience. We're glad to have you, Steve Schmidt. Thanks for joining PolyOptics. Thank you guys. Mark Penn, Karen Hughes, Steve Schmidt, all of that on an outstanding episode of Polyoptics. This was 49, Josh, and I want to include Catherine Caperton, our producer here in Washington. This team has come to a place we weren't sure we'd ever get to, and next week, Josh, it's 50.
1: Episode 50, Catherine, Adam. It's been over a year that we've been at this. Our our guests couldn't have been more accommodating uh, over those months, and it's great to come to Episode 49 with people like Mark and Karen. Steve Schmidt I mean we we are talking to the the people who are at the height of their professions
2: absolutely Catherine Caperton uh, you have driven this show you've helped take us where we are uh, today on POTUS you've been at POTUS since the beginning what do you think about episode 50 coming up on Follow (laughs) Um, Optics
0: I'm looking forward to
2: 50 I'm looking forward to 100 it's been a complete and utter pleasure to work with both of you and I can't wait uh, and look forward to every week Yeah, she's behind the board Catherine Caperton we love her we'll be back for episode 50 next week on POTUS.